Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February 27th, 2014, and this is episode 1310 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. Um, you know, we talk a lot about permaculture on the Survival Podcast because it is the best way I know to actually live in a way that makes you resilient that makes you able to deal with things like anything from an economic collapse to the grid going down. Uh, if you really look at the principles of permaculture, whether you think they do or not, well, they are actually uh, the blueprint for modern survivalism. Uh, you want to be able to feed yourself, clothe yourself, keep yourself warm, keep yourself cool. We have the answers there. You want to make sure that you can also feed other people in your family and wonder, well, how the hell do I store so much food that I can do this? Then the productivity and the abundance is the way that that happens. You want to know how to build community so that if things really go bad, you can rally the troops right in your own neighborhood. We have the answers there. Um, and, and I know some of you struggle with this, but it is so important that you understand what you're actually trying to accomplish Versus just thinking that a case of MREs and number 10 cans are going to fix the problems that we're frankly going to deal with going forward into the future. And frankly address the problems that got us to this terrible state that we're in as a society anyway. The next time you're thinking about your future and wondering about how safe your family and you will be in the future, stop and ask yourself, how the hell do we get here? How do we get to a point where we're so vulnerable? I think permaculture has a lot of answers to that. Today we're taking a different look at it, though. I had Jeff Lawton on the show earlier this week, and we talked about how many veterans are finding healing in permaculture and finding careers in permaculture. I have someone on today who who fits that perfectly. His name is Nathan Love. And Nathan was not just an infantryman in the military. He was also then a civilian contractor in Afghanistan, and he basically lived in a world of death. Today he's moving into a world of the creating of abundance in life, and he's find, finding healing in that. We also have him in a unique time. His company is a brand new company. Um, they're just starting to actually go out into the wide world and take clients. This is a lot like in other aspects of permaculture when we start talking about what to do with a field before anything's been done rather than just show you the food forest that stands there five years later. It'll be a great discussion. I'll have him on in just a minute. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Backyard Food Production. Hey, permaculture is a lot about turning your backyard into a food production machine. Marjorie Wildcraft will show you how to do that. How to grow your carbohydrate crops, how to uh, grow meat in the form of rabbits and, and protein in the form of chickens and eggs. Uh, it's an amazing video that really shows you how to actually you know, execute making the change in your backyard and making it productive. And you can adapt her techniques to a suburban backyard, or to a couple hundred acres. It doesn't really matter. Um, those techniques are scalable and adaptable. You'll learn a lot by watching it. There's a bonus CD on it that probably has as much value as the price of the DVD itself, and you get the bonus CD for free. You can find her at BackyardFoodProduction.com. Best way to get to her, though, is go to our, our site, TheSurvivalPodcast.com. Click on the banner in the right-hand margin. You'll get a discount. If you're MSB, go to the MSB first. You'll get an even bigger discount. 
Next up today, Survival Gear Bags, a company born right out of the Survival Podcast. Way, way back in the very beginning when there were like 60 people in the forum, maybe 70-ish. I think Kelly's number, if I looked it up, was 66, I think. Uh, there was only like 60, 70 people in our forum. Kelly had a handle in there. His name's Cart Pusher because he still uses it. And he was in fulfillment. And he said, hey, I know vendors and stuff. Maybe I can get us some group buys. He put together some group buys and uh, got some good deals for people on the forum. And people liked him. And he said, hey, maybe I can do this for a business. He created Survival Gear Bags. And when he did that, he created an awesome new company, and we gave him some, uh, gave him a little bit of love here from the microphone, but only as much as we could because he wasn't a sponsor. Eventually, a space opened, and he wanted to be a sponsor, so we took him on board. He's continued to do an amazing job. Check him out. Survival Gear Bags. Great gear and great bags to put your gear in. And you get a discount if you are a member of the Support Brigade, and everybody always gets free shipping at Survival Gear Bags. Check them out today. Next up today, MSB Discount Vendor of the Day. Progressive Gardens. What a great time to have a discount on a place like Progressive Gardens. Everything from brewing your own compost tea to nutrient for, for aquaponics and hydroponics, you name it, they've got it. ProgressiveGardens.com, 10% off for all MSB members. With that, do consider joining the member support brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members and help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. And uh, if you do if you do join the MSB, you'll get all those great discounts. You'll get $150 worth of free ebooks. You'll get video content that's available nowhere else. And you know what you get to do? If you want to come to one of my events, you get first crack at that. On that note, I think we have like four positions left. And we sold all but four, like 28 people reserved spots as of yesterday evening when I uh, shut down for the day. Might have had one or two coming today. There's a couple left. If there's any left at all, I'll open them to the general public on Friday at 8 a.m. Uh, don't bet on it, though, uh, but you never know. I mean, uh, the, it was like, I don't know, it was like 20 people registered in the first 10 minutes, and then everybody else kind of trickled in over time. So you, you just never know how that's going to work out. Uh, I think it helps that we're, I mean, in a normal event, we would have sold out by like 10.30. We're taking more people than normal. We're a little stressed out about it, but I think we're going to be able to make it work. I mean, we're taking enough people that this time we're calling a company and bringing in like some portage johns and stuff just to deal with how many people are going to be here. Um, it'll be the most people that have probably ever been here. It'll probably be the biggest event we ever do. Now, with some additions that I'm going to do to my West Pasture after this event, we may be limiting events in the future to like 20 people just due to parking constraints alone. So um, if you've been thinking about coming, this is going to be an awesome one to come to. And uh, another reason to join the MSB is being in that, you know, that first group that gets a shot at coming to these events because it is an insider's club once you've been here. Uh, there's a private email list for it, and people really kind of make a connection here that's kind of special when they come to an event. Anyway, with that, let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show. The year is 1310 because the episode is 1310. I'm at tspwiki.com. If you want to know everything about survival or help other people learn about survival and our podcast and our community, please come over to tspwiki.com, set up an account, and uh, start contributing. And if you just want to learn more, just come on over and read, man. We have some great contributors that have put together an incredible encyclopedia of survival knowledge. But one of the things that gets added every day is a history segment based on the year. And right now we're in 1310 because we use this as a perspective. Uh, I'm going to stick with a, a topic that we talked about earlier because it goes back to the Friday the 13th lineage. And it's a group that most people have, have heard of, the Knights Templar. In 1310, 
54 members of, this is, uh, again, from Alex Shrugged, who puts these things together for me on TSP Wiki. Anyway, 54 members of the Knights Templar are put to the flames after confessing crimes so terrible, I hesitate to mention them here, mostly because these accusations are entirely false, having been extracted from the Knights by torture. But King Philip the Fair of France needs gold. The Knights have it, so the king has used the French courts to get it for him. A few knights capably defend themselves in court, but many of the knights were illiterate, stood no chance at all. Now their ashes float their way up to whatever fate God has in store for them. My take by Alex. Alex says, I have no love for the Knights Templar. Really? I'd like to know why, actually, because I don't think they were bad or good. They were pretty just neutral. Uh, but they really got the shaft this time. This was all because the king needed gold to prop up the French currency. And rumors about the Knights' misdeeds gave the king an opportunity to murder them by the numbers and take all their stuff. The Pope was sidelined like anyone in modern day when their good friends are convicted of heinous crimes. Signed confessions, and all one can say is I can't believe it, which is no defense at all. The Grand Knight Templar will be next. Um, it, it makes me think of a lot of things. Uh, first of all, it makes me think that the greatest atrocities in the history of mankind have never been committed by either corporations or private individuals. The greatest mass murders the greatest atrocities to our planet, the greatest everything has either been directly done by government or by government's agents. When it's been done by corporations, it's been done by corporations under the protection of government. And that if we really want to understand the evils in the world, we need look no further than the halls of government. I know that's hard to accept, but I'd like you to tell me someone that's ever gotten away with the shit we just heard here of King Philip the Fair, that wasn't in government. And it was okay. We talked a lot about the Mongols. That was their government. Understand, it wasn't just a bunch of guys running around horses killing people. It was a nation. The Khans were the rulers of the nation. Hitler was government. Stalin was government. And many of the things that still go on in the world today were willing to drop a bomb on a wedding in a foreign country, and kill children because we believe that the target is worth the lives of an innocent child. It's done by government. And this also makes me think of 1984, where when they singled somebody out to be killed as a traitor, it wasn't good enough to just single them out and kill them, even with an all-oppressive state. They had to be tortured. They had to be made to confess And more so, they didn't just have to say they were guilty. They had, to, they had to turn around and say that they loved big government, that they loved big brother. And they had to be tortured to the point that when they were about to meet their fate and their death, they actually meant it. Because that's the definition of tyranny. It's not good enough that you just do what they want you to do. It's not just good enough that you say what they want you to say. It's only good enough when you've been so programmed and brainwashed that you believe it, and as oppressive and frightening as that sounds, let me tell you why. They are afraid of you. They are afraid of you. You scare them. They know that you're more powerful than they are. They know that there's more of us than there are of them. 
They know that the ideals of liberty are stronger than the lip service to liberty and the application of tyranny. They fear the light like demons. They are afraid. They are terrified. So they can only use one thing in response as their weapon, and that is fear. They can only use fear in response because it's the only thing that they know. They must control through fear because they fear losing control, and they fear you. The next time you feel disempowered, please remember that. And with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I want to say, hey, Nathan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, how's it going, Jack? Great to be here. Hey, man. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here, buddy. Um, You've actually been around a long time. I recognize your handle, Flippy Did It, from the blog and the forum. Uh, for for quite a quite a long time, you've been part of our community, and it's great to have you on the air with us today. We're actually going to talk about creating a business um, based in the permaculture industry, and uh, but maybe a little bit different than what most people would think of in that that sector of the world. Uh, but could you tell us? I mean, most of my guests, especially in this world, come here by a crooked path. Exactly how crooked was your path that led you to what you're doing now? Uh, there's a more crooked path. I haven't seen it. Um, I grew up in a small Oregon logging town, uh, joined the Army right after high school. And <clears throat> after I got out of the Army, I went to gunsmithing college and became a defense contractor working in Iraq and Afghanistan. After working toward becoming self-reliant for years, I found the Survival Podcast and was immediately hooked. Uh, I listened to it daily while I was in Afghanistan and realized that permaculture was what I am truly passionate about. Uh, the fact that it is an intelligent design science and it focuses on solutions really fit my own personal philosophy for what I wanted to do with my life's efforts. Uh, I put my time and my, my mind to work, learning everything I can about permaculture and how to apply that to a business. I'm borderline obsessive about what permaculture has in store for our future. Um, and I'm pretty excited about the solutions permaculture provides and the emphasis on creating life in abundance. It's kind of a switch from the tragedy of taking lives. Because, I mean, that's, you were, especially as a contractor, right, you were in the thick of it over there. You're not generally what we think of as the the uh, the hippie permaculturist, are you? Yeah, no. Uh, when I was in the military, I was an infantry soldier uh, for about 10 years. And the back-to-back deployments and getting shot and blown up were getting a little old. So uh, I had to find something else that was a little bit more productive to do. So... You, you just kind of came along our show, and that led you to to permaculture. Um, but what kind of took you and, and kind of pushed you over the edge? I mean, you're now connecting with other preppers and survivalists. You're uh, doing things like homeschooling. What was it that kind of pushed you like that extra mile? Um, actually, we'd kind of been... Uh, in a parallel universe to the survival podcast and the forums, um, we had our own local uh, group down here in Florida, and those groups got bigger and bigger, and it was actually one of my friends in those groups that actually directed me to the survival podcast, so that's when I started listening to what you guys had going on, and you know, it pretty much just meshed with everything we were already doing. So... Then all of a sudden you're going to take this from the standpoint of just, I mean, lots of people uh, find permaculture and or TSP or other prepper groups or just other groups that have said, 
enough of the conventional BS lies of life, and, and they make a lifestyle change. But you're taking this to another level with a business. What was it that kind of lit a fire under your butt and said, now I want to take this to the point of like defining my life beyond just my, my lifestyle design and go into something that like I'm going to earn my living from this, I'm going to support my family with this. Well, it seemed like a natural step in progression to uh, to start my own business, you know, as far as being self-reliant, self-sufficient. If I'm going to work every day for somebody else, that's not being self-reliant. And I'd already been starting to look around to try to start a business for about eight years and actually very seriously for five years. Uh, well, I already knew that I didn't want to do anything with a gunsmithing business um, from my knowledge of the industry. I knew that any any gunsmithing business is going to have to deal with a BATFE or whatever they call themselves these days. Um, that's not something that I want to subject my family to. Um, if I were to start my own machine shop, I'd be facing the same bureaucracy in the form of the EPA. And that led me to focus on business ideas that are more or less devoid of government interference. Uh, I wanted to create an innovative business that focuses on permaculture in an industry that's just starting to bloom. And in farming, timing is very important. Yeah, definitely. So, like, you decide you're going to do something in permaculture. Um, you're going to start a business. You could probably find a job. People always say, like, hey, this business entrepreneur crazy stuff is risky. Uh, and, and being from a military background, you probably understand things like contingencies pretty well. Um, so were there any, like, precautions you took as you made this plunge? Uh, well, first, I took a full-time job in the U.S. while I set up the business. Um, being over there in Afghanistan is real hard to get anything going on here in the States. It pays pretty well, but you're you're separated from anything physically that you need to get done here. Um, so jumping out there without a solid income is pretty terrifying and dangerous, and I wanted to play it smart and be able to get started without feeling like, you know, I have to sell this next job with whatever business I start. So by planning ahead, I was able, I think, I think I'll be able to conduct myself much more ethically from the beginning and not turn into some sleazy used car salesman. So what exactly does your company do? All right. Well, Permascapes, uh, we observe, analyze, consult, design, and install permaculture systems and hardscapes. Uh, so pretty much what you've been preaching on and, and what Jeff Lawton does and all the other great, you know, Paul Wheaton, what they do with, uh, instructing permaculture, we're going to take that out there in the field and actually do it. We're going to implement it. Um, I know I just listened to Jeff Lawton's episode yesterday with you um, about the practitioners of permaculture. That's more or less what our company is going to be, the niche we're going to fill. Um, there seems to be a growing number of permaculture consultants and designers popping up everywhere, um, but there's still a startling vacuum when it comes to actually installing the systems. Um, I've always tried to be a jack-of-all-trades and a master of some instead of one, I've heard you say. Um, but there's always going to be skills or trades that we can't do or don't have time for. Uh, we can't do everything, although it seems that way when, at least when I look at my homestead project list. Uh, so I wanted to build a business that functions as a one-stop shop for permaculture. Uh, with as many landscaping businesses in the U.S., why don't we have anything like that for permaculture? I think now we do. So how how are you planning on like taking because I know you've got another part of this business I want to talk to but like how do you like right now because your company's brand new basically um, how do you plan on taking things to market from a standpoint of 
design. So are you guys planning on actually doing the installations or just doing the design or both? Um, actually, in everything. Um, I'm not an expert on everything, and we are a new company. Uh, so we're making sure to get experts for the different aspects that our company focuses on. Uh, my operations manager is a veteran with three decades of experience in landscaping and irrigation. And we're also going to be working with permacultures, uh, permaculturists and designers until we are big, we're big enough to hire our own full-time. Um, we have uh, a designer right now that, I don't know if you've seen a lot of the uh, landscape architecture drawings uh, where they're uh, a <clears throat> perspective view from above. Um, we try to do a perspective view as if it was a photograph, kind of like what Jeff Lawton was talking about with the Google SketchUp and, and other models, Google Earth, um, where you'll take the photograph and then superimpose what you want it to look like in the future. That, that kind of a perspective drawing really gives people an idea of you know, how to progress and what it's going to look like at the finished product. I think that helps people visualize things uh, a lot better than just uh, a drawing from above of a treetop canopy. I think those designs are very useful, especially from an educational standpoint, but I don't know that they're the greatest sales tool unless somebody's already seen that and they expect that that's what they're going to get. But I think for the person, because like, I can look at something and say, well, there'd be this tree there, that tree there, and I can see that in my head. Whenever I do that with my wife, she's like, I don't, my mind doesn't work that way. And you have to put that picture in place so that, you know, a lot of people can understand what you're, what you're offering to do for them. Right. And we can, we can do, definitely do the architectural type drawings. Um, I, I did drafting in high school and I'm pretty familiar with how that layout works. But I know for me, when I'm drawing up something for, for our, our homestead, that I don't do that. I mean, I can, but. It doesn't help me plan in and plot in where things are going to go. I want it to look like it's going to look when it's finished, so I have a better idea. We can pencil things in and erase here and make it look like we're supposed to. And where exactly are you guys at in the process right now? Are you still in like a, a pre-launch phase, or have you taken any clients yet? Are you gauging interest? Where, you know, kind of where in the life cycle of the business are you at? Uh, well. Realistically, we just started uh, the business on paper uh, last month, uh, but we've been plugging along since last year, uh, mostly with our friends and family who were really excited about what we're doing and, and the products that we have that they've never seen before or had never thought about using. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we've, we've pretty much been in business, but under the radar, I guess would be the way to say it. I got you. Haven't, haven't done anything for profit to this point, um, and, and now we're ready to, I guess, go live with our launch, as they say now. Yeah, and I think that, like, have you, because you've been doing that with friends and family, have you developed some level of uh, a portfolio that you're going to be able to take out into the public that you would not have otherwise had? Um. With some regards we have, and with others, there's been a level of discretion uh, that, you know, there's obviously an element within within our community of uh, things that would be best be uh, left private, and so a lot of these people have wanted it to remain private. So we do have that level that we that we work with with uh, customers and, and clients. I got you. I'm just saying that, like, when you go out, like, I think this is an important thing for a lot of people to consider when they're in, in your, in your, you know, kind of shoes. 
and you're going to want somebody to trust you with their properties to be able to show them something that you've done or been part of. Because, again, it's another thing that's like people are visual creatures, so they have to have something to see. And I think that's something a lot of people really need to think about. And when people say, well, I'm considering doing this for a living, I'm like, well, do it in your backyard. If nothing else, you have that. Do it for a neighbor. Do it for somebody. And, you know, like you said, there's some people that don't want, like, kind of to be out there. But if I show a picture of a guild under a tree in your backyard, it can be under anybody's backyard. But you may not be hip with me putting a Google Earth image of your, your property on online. Well, we definitely have the photographs as far as a professional portfolio. Uh, we haven't assembled that yet, so I guess that would be the next step in what we can do. Yeah, um, and then you're doing something kind of as a – you mentioned hardscape, so so tell people what you mean by that. Uh, we are a, uh authorized stone stonemaker dealer and installer, and I should probably tell everyone a bit about Stonemakers first. Uh, Stonemakers is a company that creates custom hardscaping products, uh, so if you've seen the rocks and boulders at zoos and theme parks, um, then you can kind of picture the types of things that concrete can be made to look like. It can look like rocks, marble, granite, bricks, wood, just about anything you can imagine. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I've added it to my own business because it's beautiful and lasts almost forever. And those are two things that I think fit well within the principles of permaculture. Um, it also has attributes that are far superior to standard conventional concrete products. Uh, you had a show that featured a company with uh, monolithic domes a while back, and I know they didn't proof out over time, but the qualities and potential of their concrete are similar to what this concrete can do. Uh, the big difference is that we aren't tied to dome structures. Uh, this concrete can do so much more. Give us an example of some of the things that you can do with this. Uh, we can do uh, monolithic retaining walls. So um, I'm not sure a, a lot of people have their preconceived notions of what concrete can do and what it can't do. Uh, for example, building uh, vertically with concrete using forms is required in most conventional concrete. Uh, with this product, we can build vertically without forms. Um, it's going to go in in about half the time, about a third to half the cost, and it's going to be twice as strong as standard concrete. Um, we don't require cantilever bases or foundations or footings. Uh, for retaining walls, we can pour them straight into the ground without all kinds of uh, technical blueprints that most uh, architects require for the cantilever retaining walls. Um, and while they're going to be pouring a, like a soupy mix, ours is a lot more like modeling clay, so we can physically shape it into whatever the customer or client wants it to look like. And th this company that you've kind of partnered with to do this, um, I think I remember a email from you last fall about um, they're kind of cool and they're they've set up a certain way to work with veterans. Yeah, they they have a veteran program. Um, I've personally seen what kind of a, a company Stonemakers is. They're great. Um, I can't make any claims or represent them, um, but I've seen that they do do care about veterans. Um, and my opinion is that there, there isn't anything out there like their veterans program. You know, with the number of veterans struggling in this economy, the Stonemakers Company is a positive influence, and we need more companies to follow their lead. Um, if any veterans want to know more about their program, they can contact contact me directly. But, again, I can't represent them. They're, sure. It's kind of a vendor-vendee affiliate program. Um, 
and I don't want to make any claims in their in their stead because I'm not authorized to. Oh, I understand it completely. I just I thought it was kind of important to point out that you know you found a company that recognized your service and said, "Hey, we have a way to help you out and get you involved with what we're doing." in a way that's maybe easier than if uh, a non-veteran came around because there's a lot of people out there that are like yourself. They've come back from overseas or they've done their service even stateside and they're they're done with the military for whatever reason and they want to do something new. And on a lot of us, frankly, we come out of the military and our skills from military service are adaptable to other things, but they're not directly employable to many things like you came out as an infantryman so if you wanted to be a contractor and go back overseas you got a job doing that you want to be a security person you got a job doing that but you know it's not like you're going to walk into a lot of office buildings and take a job i came back as a mechanic if i wanted to work for the rest of my life breaking tires down and changing oil i could take a job immediately out of the service but a lot of people that leave the service, they also want to leave the job they were doing behind. And it's cool that right. there's people out there that create opportunity for you. Well, and especially uh, the kinds of uh, companies that are out there that, you know, especially if you have a, your own business model and you're looking to go out there on your own and blaze your own trail, you might not have the experience to do that. And they might offer either a product or a value-added product that allows you to do the things that you wanted to do and just gives you another tool in your toolbox. How important do you think having this product set, and if it wasn't this, something else is to the success of a new business when you're you're out selling something like permaculture that is a, a growth market, but it's still a very small, minor niche, and being able to use additional value add is to making sure your company can survive and grow? Well, I mean, uh, Stonemakers does have a tremendous product, and it offers considerable capabilities for what we do, and we have put that tool in our permaculture toolbox. But on its own, its own footing, you know, it's, it's a product that's completely scalable. So if I only wanted to sell in suburbia, I could. Or I can take that tool and apply it to what we're doing. And as we see other innovative products and techniques, we're going to continue to increase our potential, you know, to design and create the most evolved permaculture systems that we can. I guess, you know, the machinist and inventor in me, I just want to analyze problems and find out ways to solve them. Well, I'm just kind of the reason I'm focusing on that is I think a lot of people that that want to be in a permaculture style business and want something about permaculture to be part of their business can learn a lot from the the angle you're taking here that you have to think bigger than I'm going to teach PDCs and do consults. That the more value add you can stack, then the more diverse your company is and the more effective you can be at fulfilling the primary goals of your companies, which are serve your customers well and earn a profit so your company can stay in business. And it's good that I see more and more people coming to permaculture from the non-typical background that understand like profit's not a dirty word. You know, like like, not everything that has to do with permaculture needs a 501c3 attached to it. Uh, If I don't, if I didn't make money doing what I do, do you think I'd still be doing it every day, you know, six years later? And the answer is no, I couldn't afford to. Well, I don't disagree with that, and I know we've had our minor disagreements uh, in that I'm an objectivist, and I follow Ayn Rand's philosophy pretty pretty closely. Not, I wouldn't say 100%, but capitalism is number one. And if I'm not making a profit, then why am I doing it? I don't think we disagree with that at all. I'm all for capitalism. I'm just not for corporatism. <laughs> yeah, there was some 
something there about the non-interventionism, which I yeah. am actually a proponent of. I'm not a uh, interventionist at all, but I think we uh, off topic, but I think we had discussed that at one point. Yeah, I think we did. I think my point wasn't that you were that Rand was. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, let's let that go. But uh, yeah, I forgot all about that until you brought it up. I just think that like like so, you need to be looking to say what other value add functions can I stack into my business and it's anybody that's out there that's you know you've taken a 72 hour PDC course okay yeah you've just graduated from from tire kicker to perpetual lifelong student uh that's also a teacher because the best teachers are always perpetual students but right. you've got to bring more to the table than just you know I took a course like and, and, and more than just I can transform your yard into a food forest, you also have to bring a certain diversity of being able to, quite honestly, survive the incubation period of a business. Correct, and that's that's part of why we took the path of me taking the old uh, clock and or punching the clock job. Um, you know, I, I kind of knew that whether it was an average paycheck or a six-figure contract or salary, I was just making working to make somebody else rich. Um, and, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to actually have a business that went out there and made money and then could achieve the goals that we wanted. But you're absolutely right. When you, when you start talking about making a business, especially one that's focused in the permaculture industry, <clears throat> because I do believe it's going to be an industry, whether you know some people want to believe it or not, um, it's going to take off and it's going to go out there and it's going to be big. But if you don't have anything other than a PDC in your in your back pocket, which I don't even have yet. I wanted to do the Jeff Lawton one last year, but I was still in Afghanistan. And if you think my satellite internet sucks now, you should have been over there because it was even <laughs> worse. So I've been, you know, eyeballing this one coming out in March and and, and pretty excited about it. So, but not to say that if all you have is a PDC that, you know, you suck, just that you need to be focused on getting out there and not be very narrow in your scope, but also don't try to take on too much. You need to have solid, identifiable goals and ways to achieve those goals rather than just say, yeah, I want to change the world and permaculture is my solution. That needs to be a little bit more focused than that. Well, I think that you have to look at like the experience you build, the knowledge you bring to the table, all those things as well in addition to a PDC. I try not to either oversell or undersell the value of a PDC. But if right. we compare it to other educational models – I mean, let's be let's be flipping honest. Let's say your business had a bunch of investor capital, and you you were going to go big right away, and you were going to have like twenty or thirty employees, and uh, you were going to hire a business operations manager to op, be an ops manager of your business, and you were going to take the CEO stand back and let a, you know a, an onsite president or ops manager manage the business. Would you hire someone with a four year business management degree and no experience? Or would you rather have someone with my background manage your business for you, even though I don't have a degree? To me, a degree is a piece of paper, and it's yeah. great that you were able to sit through and get that piece of paper. But, I mean, I was making six figures in Afghanistan with no degree. Still today, I have no degree. I don't desire a degree. I'm self-taught and self-learned. Um, and I think those are the more – the self-educated people, in my opinion, are the ones who show that they actually want to go out there and learn the information – versus the people who sat through a class and were just spoon-fed whatever it was that the professor or ad adjunct faculty wanted to teach them. Yeah, and what I'm saying, what I, kind of what I'm saying too, like, so let's say you go in and talk to a prospective client 
and you walk in, you look at their backyard, you look at their lifestyle, you get a feel for what they're doing, and you sit down and say, these are the things I'd like to do for you. And they say, okay, well, what, what are your qualifications? And you can lay out a hundred different sets of letters and it will never have the impact of pulling out a book and saying, we did this project, we did this project, we did this project, this is before, this is after, this is before, this is after. Here's client letters that say we did a good job. And that the track record and experience that you build over time will always have more value, both perceived and real, than just the base education. Oh, absolutely. You know, and especially like you're saying, you know, the perceived value of a PDC, that's, I think that's where you're hitting it right on the mark that, you know, someone can have a PDC, but without some kind of a verifiable track record, it's, it could be a wash. It depends on the client and, you know, how much faith they have in, in you and your business to be able to succeed at, at the proposed goal. I have to tell you, one of the best things I ever heard Bill Mollison say was, as far as I'm concerned, you should start teaching permaculture before you even have a PDC. In other words, if you, whatever you know, teach it to other people. Like, I don't see you, his big thing was, I don't see you as a threat as a teacher. I see you as a bit of help. Um, right. That was one of the things that kind of sold me on the the entire philosophy of permaculture as it was originated. There's some splinter groups that, you know, everybody rolls in mud, or if you're not a Democrat, you're not a permaculturist. Or I've actually heard one guy say in, a, well, I was actually told he said it because I wasn't allowed there when the PDC was going on because I was evil. Um, but he told the students, if you own a gun, you're not a real permaculturist. And uh, I, I thought it was funny when I got off the air with Jeff the other day, um, uh, and we talked a little bit after hours. I, I said, I want you to know the diversity that you've created in the permaculture movement. So I had Joe, my intern, go and grab a, just a gorgeous custom-made AR uh, that, that was presented to me at the last event uh, by a listener who builds them. And he got a grin about a mile wide on his face. And his first words were, I want one. <laughs> and I said, well, Jeff, you live in Australia. I can't fix that for you. Uh, but if you come here, I'll have one to loan you while you're here anytime you're here. So, you know, if he doesn't feel that way, then, you know, maybe we have a misunderstanding in some layers. But I think the upshot of that was, too, that, like, anybody can do anything they want with permaculture because it's really a science. And trying to say who owns permaculture is like trying to say who owns physics or who owns calculus or or, you know, and it's it's this this way of thinking that we can each take and do with as we please. And then the market judges us on our performance. I agree. And I also look at it, um, I have that machining and, and gunsmithing background, and there's a lot of tools that you can use, you know, to accomplish whatever task has, whether it's refitting a stock or making a brand new part for some new pump or whatever it is. And I look at permaculture as a beautiful, beautiful science to use. I mean, it can apply to anything. Just, I mean, you were talking about the other day with the uh, applying it to a business, and it actually made me sit back and, and reevaluate what I'm doing as a business with the permaculture lenses on. Uh, but it, I really don't see where you couldn't apply it other than when you were talking about, you know, applying it to things that are extremely evil or nefarious and malicious. Yeah, like we were saying yesterday, if you want a permaculture business clubbing baby seals with large clubs with giant tenpenny nails in them, I, I can't actually figure out how to do that for you. But if you're doing anything that's ethical, 
uh, and not going into the, the morally reprehensible, we can not only fit permaculture into it, we can probably use permaculture to make it better and more productive. We may do it in a way that sacrifices some short-term revenue or short-term profit, but my belief is it will, in the end, it will always be the best thing for the customer and the business that the profit will always be higher in the long term, just as the abundance will always be higher in the long term. So I could plow the field right now and plant it with corn and have a much bigger corn yield at the end of this season. And if I plant it with trees, there's no way they're going to give me much of a yield at all. But I can plant the trees, plant annuals in it and give up and get some harvest. But long term, that forest will outproduce what corn ever could do many times over. And like you have to build a business that way too. Absolutely, and, and it's to me it's a narrow view or, or spectrum to believe that you know you're going to give up things by by using permaculture. You know, you're looking at the, the idea that wealth is finite, where wealth is not finite; it's created. And if you're using permaculture, you're building community, you're building abundance. That's all wealth. You know, you're creating it every day, and there is no short-term loss by using you know, permaculture and being being ethical in your practice. It's going to reap more wealth over the long term and the short term, whether you know the narrow-minded people want to believe it or not, but it will. Well, especially when we start to expand our, our, our definition of wealth. So we've been mentally conditioned to believe in our society today that wealth is your car, your house, your degree, um, your money, your retirement account, uh, maybe your wife's jewelry, and your and your uh, and and your kids' careers, right? That you've purchased for them in the form of a college education as well. Right. And if we keep that narrow definition of wealth, then we don't see a lot of wealth gain from permaculture. We can if we channel it right, because we can have more of those things if that's what we really want. But in general, when we start expanding our wealth to say, okay, well, why is one of the freaking reasons I work so flipping hard? Well, food on the table. So if all of a sudden I have a home, even in the suburbs, a quarter acre lot that's producing half my food, and that can that's so doable at this point, you can't even argue it because we have too many places to go, there's one, there's one, there's one. And now I have a system that requires very little effort for me that's, that's you know, replaced that need to work. To me, that wealth is worth more than the dollars because I'd rather have the time back and the food than just the dollars and still not have the time, if that makes sense. It, it does make sense. I'm, my wife and I were sitting down with our kids yesterday. But, you, know, you mentioned before we homeschool, and we explained to them how a mortgage and, and the math behind amortization works. And so basically what it worked out to without getting too deep into the numbers and giving away personal life information uh, I won't have this home paid off until I'm about 68. So if the average lifespan of an American male is 72, then I'll have a home paid off for exactly four years, and then I'm dead. So what's it worth to me to put all that time and effort into something only to have it paid off for four years before I'm dead? Well, let's go back. We're building wealth, but it may not be for me. It might be a legacy that I leave for my children in the form of, property, a home, a working farm, food forest that's going to produce, you know, for my grandchildren's grandchildren. That, to me, is a wealth that's worth working for. A Jaguar or a new yacht, not so much. 
Absolutely. And I mean, so like part of that requires then that, I mean, what happens to the average senior citizen's home today when they pass away? And you, we can answer that a few different ways, right? One is it's been reversed mortgage now. Right. There's just very little equity in it and the bank harvests what's left and nobody gets anything. Number right. two is the kids look at the house and nobody really wants to live in, in, in dad or mom's house. And it really, it, it's kind of a, you know, it's not what the kids want. So it's sold and split up. Um, or there's still so much money on it that the bank takes it even though they don't want it. Or that's it. That's that's the well, big things. There's also the People's Republic of that comes in with their estate tax and makes you sell it off at a loss. And then they take a third of it or whatever, 50% of it, whatever it is nowadays. Yeah. And I mean, so those are your... Those are your options, and the only way to prevent that is to have the family look at that home with such a, a, a value that's a true value, not just a nostalgic value like it was dad's house, and actually want to keep it in the family. And if it's if it's a food production system in addition to a house, all of a sudden it takes on it like you're not so hip on getting rid of it. Or even if you decide like, okay, dad retired to Florida. You live in Florida, but a lot of people don't. Dad retired to Florida. I don't want dad's Florida house. Um but if it even if it is sold, there's a lot, lot larger of a wealth transfer back into the family that can be used to replicate that where the kids live in I don't know Kentucky or whatever the kids live, and it, like so there's a, a greater perceived value there. Plus, if Dad's not penniless when he passes away because he was feeding himself with good quality food and he was healthier, so he wasn't living on pharmaceutical drugs that also depleted his his wealth. So it, it's there's all these little things that are this, just disintegrating our wealth today that permaculture addresses, and we're doing it at such a small scale right now that I don't think people really understand the transformation it can create. Well, just just in the same way that you have uh, Dave Ramsey's you know, snowball with paying off debt, you have the same with wealth creation, I think, in the opposite direction. Once you start down the path of wealth creation, it's going to snowball for you. The rich get richer, right? Sometimes you're more healthy and, and you know enjoy life to its fullest. Especially when we change what rich means. Now you used a word earlier that I keyed in on, but I've waited till now to come back to it because we were having some good topic discussions that I really liked. I found intriguing. You said I believe that permaculture is going to become an industry because it's it's not an industry right now. It's not big enough. To, it's a niche. It's actually a micro niche right now. Or as my my old my old. Uh, British partner would say micro niche right now, right? So you're talking about something that's a micro niche. It's a niche within a niche within a niche if we look at the global scale. Um, it, it's something that I would say 98% of the average workaday American has never even heard the word and you have to explain it to them. What makes you feel this is going to take on a movement and come into an injury, industry and maybe we can even ping pong back and forth some ideas as to yeah. what will start the process. Like, what will people see or hear or know or do that will make that happen? Well, I think any time that you have something that has intrinsic value that people don't know about and it's quantitative and qualitative, you're going to find that it's going to bloom and, and blow up like an industrial revolution. You know, you, you start back even with firearms. They were cobbled together by a blacksmith, and 20 miles down in the next town, another blacksmith found out about it. He cobbled together his version of it, and, and they were all made in different shops by different makers and were a little bit different. Once heads started to get together, and there was some form of collaboration, and as you mentioned before, an open source sort of a network, 
people started to realize that that intrinsic value was massive and public started to catch on because they're usually the slowest to realize what's going on, um, then it, it starts to take on a life of its own. You can use, you know, any kind of, you know, revolution or, or whatever uh, that has an intrinsic value, whether it's going to be Bitcoin next in the cryptocurrency world or, or permaculture in the, in the agricultural and community developing world. Um, kind of what you're doing with the perma ethos, it's going to start out small, but everything starts out small until people start to see the value in it and they say, wow, I need to get on this shit. Yeah, you know, I think for me, part of it is the quantifiable nature of it that you were talking about. I think that, so we had things where a few people here and there have transformed a backyard into a micro farm or a micro garden or a food forest and all different permeations. So there's people that you wouldn't really call it permaculture. You call it like a small urban farm, more row cropping, and, but intensive organic management. And that started to wait more and more toward the permaculture side of things, low maintenance, low input, high productivity, constantly reestablishing zone fertility. And they become like these showcases that people are like, wow. And right. to me, to get permaculture past the the niche, the sub niche into at least the niche, you know, mainstream niche phase, is we have to stop going wow. We have to you know, like, and I think I think we're getting there at least in our own internal community where we're not like when somebody does it to a backyard, we're not like wow anymore. We're like like that's really cool, but of course that's what it does. Like like when you watch somebody make a fire when you're like four years old and your dad shows you how to make a fire and a tinder bundle and all and a pyramid of, and you get airflow and he lights it up and he goes, you're like, wow. But after you've seen it done a few times, you're like, well, that's that's how you make a fire. Of course it works. You put fuel and air together in the right ratios and you apply a flame and you get a fire. And I think we need to get to the point where people look at something – like that and just go, that's really cool. Let's go build six more of them. Like, like it's nothing. Like, it's just like putting, like, when, I don't know your age, but like when I was a kid, everybody wanted, I think I'm a little older than you. Like when people would get a car and it was a beat up old car and like one of the first things they wanted to put 60s and Krager mags on it. Well, all you needed was the money to do that. There was no magic. You just went down and zip, 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 zip. You had it done. So you could put Krager mags on six cars if you had six cars and six sets of mags. And I think we have to get backyards into that kind of mentality where, well, we can just do that. And then if you get enough of them, they stop being showcases and they start being like, you know, the days when pools first started to become available to the average person and Joe put a pool in and all the kids went to Joe's house and people were looking over the fence going, yeah, I want a pool too, but I want to swim in there with my wife at night. I don't want to go over to Joe's house. So he goes to Joe and goes, where'd you get your pool? Oh, it's easy. I call this guy up. He comes down. They look at it. It's not that expensive. They can put a pool in. And next thing you know, you fly over the same neighborhood 10 years later, and it's like pool, 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 pool. And I think if we can get enough installations in, especially in the urban market, the suburban urban sector, that we can make permaculture do that. That, that Like the guy will look at the guy's backyard and go, where the hell did you get a Kiwi in Kansas? Oh, I talked to this guy Nathan, and you know, you know, or Florida. You know, you got more than citrus now. You got all these other things going. Where'd you get that? I thought this guy Nathan. He came out here. They drew up this design. Look at it. They put this in. Uh, this is the first stage. We we're going to do all this stuff. And the guy's like a little skeptical. And like next year, when the guy's handing him a bag of crap over the fence, he's like, "Who's the guy who did this again?" And I think that's that's the snowball effect we need on a national level. The people just start looking at their backyards, and you know, when Joe's in his backyard running his lawnmower, right? 
And, right. you know, then he's running the weed blower and all. And Tom's next door, kicked back by the pool, eating a freaking peach he just pulled off the tree. And they haven't heard the lawnmower run over there for a year. You start to ask yourself, why am I doing this? When when he's over there eating peaches on his Saturday and getting ready to fire up the barbecue, and I'm over here running the leaf blower and the lawnmower. Well, I think I think they've actually gotten to the. Oh, I'm sorry. You're fine. Are you there? Okay. Yeah, I'm here. I heard a break, and then I didn't know if it was talking over you or not. No, go ahead. I, I think you're right with that. With uh, with demonstrating it in you know we could call it suburbia or the soccer mom villages or gated communities. Um, but we have that kind of as the micro niche now, like you were referencing. Um, we have it in the form of, of terms that they're familiar with, things like zeroscaping and edible landscapes and all the trendy hip things that are going around the home and garden shows. I, I think that there's a lot in common with permaculture, but they don't realize that permaculture is permaculture and they can do it too. Um, yeah. And the beauty of of Permascapes, our company, is that we can take that to the home and garden shows and show them the decorative uh, concrete and uh, the edible landscaping, as they would call it, with the thornless blackberries, although I'd prefer the ones that stick you. Um, we can do that at their level, speaking their language, and that's going to bring it, I think, more into their faces. And Permascapes is also one of those repeatable uh, processes, uh, whereas our brand is a brand. So if we want to have a crew in Texas or a crew in Washington or whoever wants to take up the flag and run with it, I don't know, we haven't discussed how we would do franchising or anything like that if we would, because right now we're just a Florida LLC. But the potential is there to repeat our success wherever and to take permaculture and that message out with them. I think there's room for people to do that in your space. I think there's room for people to do it at the level that, that myself and some of the folks I'm working with want to at kind of the, the, the mid-sized farm layer. And I think there's room to do that in all these different permutations up and down. I think where we have to really work hard, though, in the suburban scapes is if we have to start out with landscaping with fruit trees, fine. But we, what we really want to do is actually transform those systems and I think the way to do that is in the sales process at the beginning. So if I was going to go into urban, suburban um, permaculture, and I walked in to talk to Tom and Sue Smith, typical middle-class Americans that heard about this thing and are wondering what I can do for them, my, my sales pitch would start out like this. Tom and Sue, here's what we're going to do. We're going to come in and we're going to evaluate everything about your household, where your waste comes from, how it goes out the door. Uh, we're going to evaluate where your food's coming from, what you're eating, how well it works for your family, what you like, what you don't like, what you could be producing on your own, and we're going to evaluate how much time you have to dedicate to this, and we're going to build something that fits you. Uh, and I don't want you to worry. I don't want you to think we're going to take away something from you because if there's something you really like and you don't want to give that up, I'm going to be the last person to tell you you have to give it up. But I'm going to tell you what your alternatives are so you can decide if you really want it or if you're you're attached to it because society's told you to be. But this is the most important thing. In everything that we do, I'm going to make sure that we're doing three things. I'm going to make sure that we're not harming your land or your neighbor's land in any way, that we're going to add nothing that's going to have any ill effects on yourself or your children or your neighbors, and I'm going to make sure that the abundance that's created is properly channeled so we can continue to reinvest it back into your land or invest it in your neighborhood. And that's like the most powerful sales presentation I could give. 
And I think most people at that point are at least open to what I want to do. And all I just did was recite the three ethics. I just put it into a story. And I, I think that that's why, that's why I love the permaculture ethics because it actually is something people want as long as we don't try to change it or alter it or make it political because there's nothing political about what I've just said. And I think that there's very few Americans that if they'll pause for 15 minutes and think about their lives, don't want something more out of it and wouldn't want to know at least a little bit more if you sat them down and explained it that way. No, I think you're right. I think also that, you know, you mentioned in the previous podcast that, you know, the the largest group that has the, the most potential to reach are the middle class Americans and Canadians and British and Australian citizens, you know, the, the developed nations, that middle class where, you know, like you said, you can, you can go out there and, and preach permaculture to the tree huggers, but, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a moot point. You're, they'll listen, they'll do something, they probably won't even get it right. Um, but you're, they're not really creating anything earth shattering. It's like, I'm not a religious person anymore, but I used to go to a church. And I used to go to a church that would do the altar calls, come down and accept, you know, Christ is your Savior. And, like, there were no new people coming into this church. <laughs> so you'd see, like, it's like the same person coming down there and doing this. Like, well, the whole point is you do it once and you've done it. And it was like they were doing it for just the sake of doing it. You know, and I feel like there's, there's like that's kind of what you're doing when you're getting a hippie to say, like, we should produce our food naturally. Well, gee, you've accomplished an awful lot. That's like getting a politician to say that we should say we should spend money, right? I mean, like it's not real good emotions, you know. Or that you should, you know, you get the ocean to agree that it should have tides. I mean, there's there's not a lot to that. And then the other side is so if I go to a farmer, he's got a financial risk in making the change, and I can only change a. I got to phase it in. If I go to try to build a community like I was trying to do, I've got all this government crap in the way. In most of America, even with HOAs, at least the backyards, if a, if a homeowner wants to put in a freaking cherry tree, they put in a freaking cherry tree. And and as, as the way government's going, I say we better plant as many of them as we can before that changes to where there's too many of them and they just can't mess with that last. It's like the last bastion of freedom is the backyard. And all but the most anal, yuppie, uptight, pain-in-the-ass communities, the backyard is still the backyard. No, I agree. I'm a gated community. I've got a farm gate in front of, in front of my place. But, as, you know, we target, you know, and, and we thought about it too, but we target residential properties and, and homeowners because the municipalities and the commercial properties, there's so much governmental interference before we can even talk to, you know, whatever council they have that approves it or board that approves it. You know, that's not how we want to do business. That's not how we want to interact with people. We want to explain permaculture to those who want to know, and those that are already sold on the idea, we want to actually be able to go in there and do it, rather than, oh yeah, well we got to fill out these forms and pay this permit fee and get some GC to sign off on the blueprints, and you know that's just nonsense. I, I think people need to realize the potential for our children too. Like, so I think part of why I, I snapped to this so quickly is I grew up, as you might know from the show, kind of split between Pennsylvania and Florida in Jacksonville, Florida. Right. And I lived at this apartment complex at, you know, like the point that I was the oldest and still there where you could run around on a bike and disappear and spend your whole day outside in, in the swamps and all. And I remember one day a teacher 
in my school that was like, you know, beyond the I'm going to follow the lesson plan teacher brought a pomegranate into school. She cuts it open and she gives everybody a couple pieces of it just so we knew what it was. Because most of us had never seen, heard of, knew what a pomegranate was. There wasn't Palm Wonderful juice in every health store back then. It was a, it was a fruit that was common, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an apple or a pear or an orange. So most kids had never seen one. So I go home and I look up against the wall of my apartment building. There's a freaking pomegranate. Now I'd lived there for years, but there was a pom- and it was ripe. And I start looking around and this this apartment complex apparently when it was established they put in a lot of fruit trees. So then I start looking around. I'm finding plums and all kinds of stuff that were growing in this apartment. Well, I tell all my friends. This is a huge apartment complex. Well, from that point on, like none of the residents even paid attention to this. But as kids, we were always looking, well, there's blackberries in the swamp, and now those plums are ripe on that tree, and these plums are ripe on this tree. And we're running around climbing trees eating all this food. And I think that, like, people don't understand how excited kids get about stuff like that because – you haven't seen kids be able to get excited about it. We have uh, our children's cousins that live in St. Petersburg area, and they come out to our place uh, probably every few months and go ahead and try to keep track of them and, and, and put a leash on them or something because they're all over the place. We've got birds everywhere and kids running around, and I don't think you're really going to get that in the city. And we lived in the city for quite some time before we were able to make our break and move out into the sticks. And, and you're right, you know, when you start putting children into the environment where they can learn and see things and observe and interact versus what they have nowadays, you know, video games and the couch, I guess, um, it's, it's a whole different childhood. Yeah, it is. And I think that, like, that's something we need to be selling too. Like if you and I agree, it's like really hard. I don't have the patience to talk to school boards. I don't have the patience to talk to bureaucrats. I do not have the patience for people who don't have enough government, so they need more government and create HOAs. But if you can get one big apartment complex or one large like managed community to realize they can do something like Village Homes has done. And the impact it will have on the, the kids in that society to be able to go outside and pick grapes, um, and to see, you know, like, to see the commerce emerge where kids start actually like, you know, selling the fruit that anybody could pick, but no one does. And it, it, they're not going to make a lot of money on it or anything. But the fact that the kid goes out, picks some plums, puts them in a thing, takes them to a neighbor and says, "Hey, I picked these plums. Will you give me a buck for them?" Like I gives them a buck. What just happened in that kid's head is, oh, there's a way to create money, right? Like that is right. so important that we understand there's a way to create wealth. I don't have to be told, punch the clock, work all day, punch the clock, get out and get a paycheck. There's, there's it, the, the, the minute a kid does that, right? And that's why I think you hear so many entrepreneur stories that start out with a kid with the lemonade stand or whatever. They didn't make it. Right. Let's not lie. They didn't make any freaking money. They weren't a kindergarten mogul or whatever. But that that was a seminal moment that like triggered in their mind that it was even possible. And we know what happens with human beings when they say figure out what's possible. Oh yeah, uh, there's people that are masters of the black black market. Um, I saw them. Selling all kinds of, you know, you got one guy, he's able to make the laundry run or whatever, and he goes to a different base and he comes back with a duffel bag full of cigarettes. Well, now he's, you know, king of the prison yard. And that same concept with children, you know, I had a paper route when I was, you know, 
12 was my first paper route, and then I turned it into five paper routes and ten paper routes, and then I was, you know, trying to skip school so I could go do paper routes and other jobs. Once that capitalist seed is planted, uh, my son has it. He was selling his candy to his cousin rather than eating it. So it's there, I think, at a young age. Yeah, I, I think I said it's like the first time you experience it, then you're like, oh, oh, this works. And like you're talking about, when you can start like organizing it for other people to do it and you still get a piece, you're like, oh, I can get other people to do things and benefit from doing it. And, you know, I think we've tried, we've, we've gone to a point now where in the world of permaculture, in the world of, you know, um, youth that like, if you do that, you're evil. Well, you're not evil because you provided somebody with a service or someone that doesn't want to step up and take that role, a place to work. That's called employing people. And it, it's really mind-numbing when you have people like, we shouldn't have people like that, but we need more jobs. Okay. Who do you think is going to give us the job? Government. It's just like, like so now you're going to get blood from the stone, right? You know, uh, it, 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 it is kind of maddening, but... I think that, like, I kind of feel like the whole prepper movement and its association with permaculture has infused a completely new lifeblood into permaculture movement with libertarian philosophy merging with permaculture ethics. There's people in it that don't like that, I guess, but too bad we're here. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to take this and make something out of it. Um, and I think there's room for everybody but there also has to be like a fundamental understanding of like this is how stuff works. Like just like you can't people say this is a drought tolerant plant, but I've talked about this already. You can't stick the seed in dry sand and wait for it to grow. Like it has to have water. So yeah. if you want a business to work, there's certain fundamentals that have to be there. Well, then I think you're going to experience a lot of sour grapes from that side of the camp, uh, mostly because libertarians and capitalists tend to be a little bit more successful with running businesses profitably. Uh, and the uh, rolling around the mud and singing kumbaya around the campfire. And we that's do stuff. That's the thing. Like we're productive. We do things. We make things happen. Not just not just capital flow, but we also like if I have capital, then I can like go install another system, which okay. will make more capital. So I can go install another system, which makes you know what I mean. Like so, we actually get shit done. Is the is the most blunt way I can put it. Yeah, the duocracy, the doers. And people will only do for so long unless they get something in return. That's that's the other fundamental dynamic there. So, hey, man, we've we've wrapped way past an hour here. I appreciate you being with us today. I know your site's still kind of in its infancy, but for people that want to call and follow you as you develop, can you tell people where they can learn more about you? Yep, they can contact me directly through my email, um, or they can use the contact form on my website, which is at permescapes.com. So it's P-E-R-M-E-S. C-A-P-E-S dot com, like permanent escapes. Um, and then my email is nathan.love at permescapes.com. Uh, I also wanted to add that we're going to do 10% off to any TSP listeners and 20% off to any MSB members. Awesome. Awesome. So one thing real quick, like you're in Florida, could you kind of talk about, we never really asked, uh, without right. giving your home address, but for people that are in Florida going, maybe I want to do business with Nathan, kind of what area of Florida are you you, you taking care of? We are dead smack in the middle of Florida, uh, right, you know, coast to coast and north to south, we are right in the middle. Uh, we'll do all of Florida, and we are also trying to work on figuring out how to travel within the U.S. as well. Uh, there are 
Tour is really good about uh, the type of business that we are um, with what kind of permits we don't need. Um, so if it's a home, you know, property, county, as long as you don't have city problems and bureaucracy getting in the way, we can come and do anything that you want done without going and doing a whole bunch of permits and garbage. <clears throat> that's not the case in other states. Uh, we'll, work with, we'll work with anyone uh, that's able to research that information with us and find out what we'll work. Excellent. Well, Nathan, man, thank you for uh, for your service, uh, and thank you for being with us today on the air. Well, thanks for all that you do and, and all the community does for us. We're trying to give back in any way that we can as well. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Nathan Love, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way